Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Ray Youssef, an immigrant from Africa and the CEO of Paxful. We talk about Africa, the current state of affairs, and why it's so poor. Ray also tells us about how he is making a difference on the continent, not only through Bitcoin, but also through schools and wells. This episode was very educational for me. I know something about Africa, but Ray is an expert and knows from personal experience what it's like over there. I was really surprised by what it was that's keeping Africa from economic prosperity. Spoiler alert, it's the restrictions on trade. I hope you enjoy this interview. Ray Youssef, how's everything going? Hey, Mr. Song, everything's going great, sir. <laughs> I think you're in New York, right? How are things over there with COVID and everything? I will be in New York tomorrow. I'm touching mm -hmm. down, but currently I am in London, which is also just locked down. So I'm going from a city that just locked down to a city that's been completely locked down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Do you feel like uh, this is going to be over anytime soon or are you expecting things to I don't know, change in the next few months? No, this is not going to be over anytime soon. I think we can all buckle up for a really wild ride. The show that's happening in the United States uh, right now, you know, who knows what it could turn into, but anything is on the table, even civil war. And that means us you know, people in crypto have an even greater responsibility to be aware and to give people opportunities during such a dire time. Okay, well, that's great. <laughs> like, well, well, very positive outlook there. I guess we'll see exactly what happens with that. But Ray, your story is so interesting to me because you do have this hard to see Africa sort of rise up. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what got you to care so much about this continent? <laughs> Great question. I was hoping you would ask. So, so I'm a first-generation immigrant. My parents moved to America, to New York City, for the promise of a better life when I was two years old. And they moved there because, you know, where they were at, you know, where they were born, Egypt, uh, was a poor country and it was a country that had no opportunities. You know, they couldn't. It was hard enough for them just to escape the country. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, we came to America. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I majored in history, but I taught myself how to code and I've been through a lot of ups and downs. I've had some notable successes and I've had 11 failures in a row, which was really <laughs> rough, but it teaches you a few things. And I'll tell you, in every single one of those things, I got a lesson that I need right now to make this happen. And every single startup I've ever had payments and billing has always been the problem. So here we are to fix the source. Hmm. So about me in Africa, you know, I was born in Africa. I consider myself African, but it's a lot deeper than that. If you look at Africa as a place, you know, we in the West, whenever we think of Africa, we only think of poverty, disease, corruption, only those three things. And there is a bit of that there. Yes, quite a bit in some places. But when I went to Africa, when I actually went there and met the people, especially the young people, I saw a continent of literally armies of roving, unemployed geniuses walking around well-educated, ambitious, hungry, looking for a path forward. These people, these young people, they call them the cheetahs of Africa. They constitute the greatest natural resource of the continent, far and away more than anything you can find in the ground. 
And I say that with all gusto, 100% confidence. Those folks want to change the world. They want to change their lives. They're ready to move ahead, and they're just looking for a path. Also, they're completely mobily enabled. You know, there is data coverage there. It's exceptionally well covered, a continent of Africa. However, the data is very expensive. And the beautiful thing is, you know, they all use mobile wallets. You know, mm-hmm. Go talk to your average Kenyan. Almost none of them have a bank account if they're at a certain age, but all of them have an M-Pesa account and sometimes several online wallets, and that is how they transact. So what is keeping Africa down? What has kept Africa down all this time? You know, if they have all those natural resources, why can't those folks get it together, huh? It's an honest question. It's a question I always had. As an American, they always, you know, it's... Anyway, I'm not going to get into America and its issues, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, the question, it's a good question. What has kept Africa down? Like, why doesn't it should be the richest continent in the world? And, you know, the real reason is that it's a miracle that they're even as, as well off as they are, considering the system of financial apartheid that they must endure. Let's look at Africa. Let's give some examples. What is this financial apartheid we're talking about? Well, first of all, and this is pretty egregious, 14 countries in Africa are basically colonies of France because France completely owns their economic system. These 14 countries, they use the African franc, which is about as African as the Federal Reserve is federal. It's a scam (laughs) to the max, a scam. The French print their francs for them, charge them for it, and send it over to them. And in some cases, the French have control of how much they put in or out. Meaning they have control of the volume of their of their currency of their currency as well. It's it's complete madness. I mean, how could such a like I was, when I had to accept that this was actually true that in this day and age we can have a situation like this and no one's saying anything about it? Really opened my eyes. Okay, if it's this bad here on the face, how much worse is it? If you want to know how much worse it is, all you have to do is go to Africa, hang out with an African person, go about their day, and see how they use money. Everything is fine if they can use their mobile wallets within the country and transact with people. But if they need to send money to the country next door, it's an absolute nightmare. Using the banking system, it uses some broken version of SWIFT in Africa. Sending money to the country next door is you're way better off putting it in a suitcase and flying it over. It's cheaper, too, in some cases. So that's the situation there. Even with the online wallets, you can't send money to an M-Pesa user in Kenya uh, from an M-Pesa user in Ghana, for example. The two countries' networks are not compatible. Why? It's a good question, but that's the case. And it gets even worse when you can say that's just the incompetence of the system within. The real financial apartheid comes in when you see that the Western circle of finance, the golden circle of finance, their money is, in their eyes, a lot better than any African money of equivalent amount. And that's the thing that is really scary because they can basically control how much a country can export, how much wealth it can receive back because they can mess with a country's currency. And in that case, central banks of these countries always try to maintain as much foreign currency as possible to pay their bills and do things like that. And that means the people inside the country cannot freely transact to the outside world because of those controls coming from external forces and also imposed on them by domestic forces. So it's like a double layer of financial apartheid that the peoples of Africa have had to deal with. So here's the question I ask everyone. You want to know why Africa is so, you know, uh, degraded? Simple. How advanced would America be if you couldn't send money from New York to New Jersey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's that simple. 
So mm. I think that answered some of your question, I hope. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot in there that I want to cover, but I want to talk about sort of this lack of opportunity that you see the so-called cheetahs that you said were all over Africa, that they don't have any opportunities to do things. I mean, with outsourcing and all kinds of things like that, how is it that they're not able to find work given how brilliant they seem to be? It's a great question. You know, there's you can get on Mechanical Turk right now and get a job doing that, and a lot of Africans do do that. But ultimately, it all comes down to how are they going to be paid? Mm. You know, like, for example, Egypt. Let's take Egypt, my country of birth. There was one, I think I think it was a, it was a I forget the, the nature of the company, but a huge company wanted to come to Egypt. They wanted to create, you know, at least like like some ridiculous amount of jobs, like 100,000 new jobs. And they had to pull out because there was no way to pay the Egyptians. They didn't have oh, bank wow. accounts. So they took the business to Iran instead. I'll remember exactly what company it was, and I'll tell you, but like, there's so many examples of that. You know, If you're a Swedish company and you're getting VAs doing your work for you in Nairobi or in Malawi or Burkina Faso, they're doing great work. There's some brilliant people. How do you pay them? Mm. How does a Swedish company send these guys money? Right? There's all these little challenges. Like When you actually like get down to the day-to-day operations, you'll see that people there are not working with much at all. Mm. And because, you know, there's 2,000 payment networks in Africa, only 3% of them talk to each other. Mm. It's even fragmented within the country. And that's the situation. We have all this, this genius, this work there that just trapped in these young people's bodies and heads. And you mentioned also about like 14 countries being essentially colonies of France. How much does France benefit from that arrangement? Are they able to extract resources and sort of, you know, pay for the social programs in France as a result of having essentially colonies? I'm sure they're able to extract tremendous resources. Even if they couldn't extract resources, they can just buy the resources up. And in many cases, they control the volume of currency in those economies. They can even hurt the value of those currencies by exerting pressure and working with other countries like Britain and the United States to bring the currency down and punish them and keep them in line. It's a tremendously well-evolved control structure that just happens in the background. It's not about, you know, drilling for gold and blood diamonds anymore. In many cases, you control the volume of currency in the economy. You can just get them to do all that work, and they'll happily sell it for you at some degraded price just to get a few euros. You know, (laughs) this is the world that we're living in. And it's quite sobering to understand that. But if I were to say what was France doing with that money, I certainly not taking care of its people. I'm sure that money's going elsewhere. Mm, I see. Yeah, I always wonder because, like, domestically they have some industries, but you know, like the level of things that they, you know, pay for from a social perspective, it never really made sense because they provide all sorts of social services, which. Like from an economic standpoint, I always wondered, but if they do have colonies in Africa, that would make a lot more sense. That's they're essentially funding those through currency manipulation and so on. Exactly. I think, you know, we haven't even hit the tip of the iceberg with this one. You know, like how many skeletons under the closet are there? Like, is, Would France completely collapse if these colonies broke away? That might very well be the truth. 
Mm. This was certainly the case historically with Great Britain. They were able to extract so much value from like India, for example. They were able yeah, to do that yeah. for a very long amount of time. So yeah. it wouldn't surprise me. I didn't realize that they controlled the currency of a lot of these African countries and kind of act like the central bank and, you know, kind of can manipulate those states, you know, and they're not really sovereign. I didn't realize that at all. I didn't realize that at all. And you'd be shocked if I told you how I discovered this. <laughs> how did you discover it? Well, before I went to Africa, that my first got turned on to it by Uber drivers. Like, just talk to your Uber driver. And he's from these countries to get them talking. And they will just, some of these guys are super awake. And they just dropped this on me. And then I was like, wow, is this true? Let me go and confirm this. Indeed, a lot of the African leaders of these countries are trying to negotiate with the French right now to try to introduce some interim currency and just get them out from under this, but they're fighting and pushing back tremendously. So this is real. This is confirmed. This is happening right now. Your Uber driver will tell you, you go to Africa yourself, ask some people in the know that understand how the banking system really works. And it's kind of like an inside joke. And those guys at the top, you know, they're not going to ever do anything to go against it because their bank accounts are in France too. Mm. Wow. If their bank accounts were Bitcoin, they might have a shot. <laughs> but if all their money's in France, they're not going to go against the colonial master. Uh, wow. Right? Yeah. I didn't realize France, for example, controlled that much of the African continent still. But that makes sense. That would explain a lot of different things. You also mentioned that you know you, you have a lot of these people that can be very productive. One of the things that I know about Africa is that often like there's very little manufacturing going on there. Is that in large part because of the restrictions on imports as a result of this currency manipulation? Well, you know, the currency wars are they're not going away. You know, they're only going to increase. We're living in the era of the currency wars. You know what happens in Zimbabwe Venezuela, what might happen to Argentina, Turkey, whoever else, you know, gets this, you know, this, this currency wars, war hammer, they're just smashing down on them. That can happen at any time. And every single time that happens in the world, we as a community have to be there to show people, hey, guys, there is another way. If your currency is being devalued and you don't trust your banks, there's a use case for here. Look at Bitcoin. And we can even talk about Tether or Ethereum or whatever it might be. I prefer Bitcoin. You know, I love Bitcoin, but there's a whole ecosystem out there. There's DeFi as well that people can get to. And it's up to us to educate those people. And ultimately, at the end of the day, everything is about education. You're one of the best educators in the space, Jim. I really respect what you do. And when I went to Africa last year, we did a campus tour, 2019. We went to eight different campuses, four in Kenya, four in South Africa. And I swear to you, brother. <laughs> you know, it got to a point where I just would walk into a room and everyone would be looking at me with the same look, like almost tired. Like they were almost like concerned, like what was I going to talk about? I started talking about Bitcoin and you see people's eyes glaze over a little bit. Like, I'm like, Hey, what's going on guys? Tell me like, why do you all look like this? And they just told me. So the truth is in Africa, nearly everyone has been scammed or knows someone that has been scammed in a cryptocurrency related, you know, oh. scam, multi-level marketing um. from Russia, like one coin, one coin devastated whole countries in Africa, wow. poor farmers, you know, like crypto mining scams. Oh yeah. Give us your money here. Mine is crypto. And you know, again, nothing. 
you know, day trading, how many people lose money. It's just been a complete disaster in Africa up until now, right? When That's when I got there. So we have to undo all that negativity that comes from all these scams. And it comes from, you know, the bad rep that the government has with crypto. And you can't blame them because all these regulators over there are just hearing about their people being scammed with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have anything to do with Bitcoin. They're just the scammers are using Bitcoin as a superior form of money. So I get in front of all these students. and I'm like, guys, okay, I understand. This happened. You know, there's been times where I've been scammed. We, you know, there's, there's scammers in crypto. That's the dirty truth. Is But why are there scammers here? There's scammers here because there's tremendous opportunity. Was there's a technology here that if used, it is far more than just an instrument of speculation or tool of investment. It's a tool of exchange. The tr- killer app of Bitcoin is as a universal translator and trans like um, shipper of mo- transporter of money. With two peer-to-peer trades using Bitcoin as the, as the crypto escrow. You can convert any form of money into any other form of money. For example, someone can buy an Amazon gift card with cash in California, go on to Paxful, sell it, maybe to a guy from China or Singapore or India, get Bitcoin, and they can take that Bitcoin once it's in their Paxful wallet, they can send it out, or they can sell it to someone in Nigeria and say, hey, send a bank transfer to my mother, and it'll do it. Or they can sell it for another gift card, like an Xbox gift card, mm-hmm. or for a PayPal deposit, or an M-Pesa deposit to a friend to send money to someone in Nairobi, or an Alipay deposit in Shenzhen. Any form of money can become any other form of money. We didn't. This is genius, right? But we didn't figure this out ourselves. We just talked to our users, particularly our African users. They figured this all out. They took this open-ended peer-to-peer marketplace. And they did all these amazing little things on it, magical things like remittance, advanced payments. Some people even took the magic to a maximum and they started their own little versions of Western Union or PayPal, <laughs> right? I'm serious. This one guy in South Africa, this guy, he did it pure commando entrepreneur style. He found a problem. He focused on a community to solve it for and he just iterated he found Nigerian workers in South Africa that want to send money back home. They don't have a South African bank account. They don't want one. They get paid in cash in Rand. He told them, hey, deposit this cash in Rand to my bank account. Any one of the, you know, to any bank here that I have an account, you know, it's put it in my bank account, right? And then he takes that money, buys Bitcoin with it, then sells the Bitcoin to someone in Nigeria who will send the money via bank transfer to mom or pay her out with cash over there. And he undercuts Western Union by half, still makes a good profit, and the people get, you know, the money gets to their mother the same day or the next day. Mm-hmm. So he's improved upon the process completely. And he's just focused on one corridor and makes it work. Mm-hmm. So you do have this company, Paxful, which you talked about a little bit. But what made you want to create that company? And what was the motivation behind creating this sort of like marketplace where you can exchange one money for another? Well, first of all, full disclaimer, me and my co-founder, Artur, we're both serial entrepreneurs. We just can't help it. You know, we're going to be hatching ideas and then building things. It's just, we can't not do that. You know, it's, it's our greatest pleasure is to build something useful for other people. And it's also, you know, with our hearts, we, you know, we're good guys. We want to do something heroic in the world. Like one of Paxful's three values is to be a hero. If you have a chance to do something freaking epic and change the world, you did better damn well take it. You know, give it everything. Why not? 
What are we waiting for? Who's going to fix this problem if we don't? We finally have an opportunity now for the first time in human history to bring it all together, to create a truly free market for money that is an alternative for everyone. And Bitcoin, peer-to-peer electronic cash, started this. This peer-to-peer platform, people-powered marketplace, this is the next evolution of this. We need to bring all these people in. Why? So we can take all that value out of the fiat world, bring it into the crypto world, and take all of these people, the real humans, not technocrats, not crypto nerds, real humans, and bring them into this wonderful world, educated, armed with knowledge of security, armed with knowledge of keeping their own money sovereign. We can actually do this now. This is the first time in history we've had this available. And look, the whole of this amazing young continent, rich in natural resources and brains and ambition, is opening up. They all have internet access. They have mobile phones. They understand the concepts of mobile money. Wait a minute. We're looking at the greatest chance in human history here. We can open up a golden age in this rising star of superpowers, Africa. And we've started that already. The trillionaires of the future are going to come from Africa. And the money business, fintech, payments, Bitcoin, whatever you want to call this world that we are in, is the portal to that. This is my call out to everyone listening. If you want to change the world, reach out to me. Reach out to Ray Paxwell on Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp, anywhere. I'm, I'm always talking to customers. I'm always talking to people. Reach out to me if you're an exceptional talent and you want to change the world. We're the team to work with. I'll stop talking now, Jimmy. It's it's fine. It's obvious you're very passionate about this topic. I have another question for you regarding Africa, because we know that China has been investing significantly in Africa, or I think for people that are there, they kind of see it more as China abusing the African countries and taking their resources and exploiting their labor and so on. What's your view on what's going on between China and Africa? Well, first of all, everyone's been exploiting the Africans. Uh, I have to say the Europeans can't talk any smack on the Chinese. I mean, the Chinese didn't come in with, you know, slave collars, right? They came in and said, hey, we'll build your roads for you. Mm -hmm. They might charge them rent to use those roads afterwards, but at least they're coming in, you know, with a deal with a value, all right? So I'm not going to hate on the Chinese for that, for their Belt and Road Initiative. I will say that I am working to race, stay ahead of the Chinese on that front because I want to make sure that the sovereignty stays with the African people. But that being said, you know, there's room for everyone. As an American, I have to say, I don't think America has the best interests. I probably would rather work with the Chinese. At least they build some roads. America's only good at blowing roads up. Sorry, that's it. That's true. Well, so one of the things that I heard about with sort of this commerce between Africa and China is that oftentimes Bitcoin is the currency that's used to pay, say, suppliers in China for various goods and services. Are you seeing a lot of that on on your platform or on the ground or something like that? Well, I'll tell you what we are seeing. It happens online. So a simple example, and I love examples, right? Say a merchant in Africa, especially in a money prison like Egypt or Nigeria, one of those places. Say they want to you know, buy some goods to sell. Well, Africa doesn't really make that much stuff right now, unfortunately. So they buy most of their stuff from China. So if a merchant in Nigeria wants to buy some video games from a factory in you know, Shenzhen, China, how is he going to pay for it? Mm. 
So right now, what happens if they don't have factual, if they don't know about Bitcoin, is they will take their Naria, turn it into U.S. dollars on the black market, find some way to take those U.S. dollars to a bank account in America or Europe, or talk to a friend of a friend of a family friend that might have access to a bank account in Hong Kong to make that wire transfer for them to the guy in Alibaba mm. to get paid. Or he loses what, you know, like 20, 30, 50, sometimes more percentage points of his money. It takes him two weeks. It's a huge hassle. What if he doesn't have that special friend that has that bank account to get that money there? Or you could skip all that, get some Bitcoin, sell it to a guy in China for Alipay and say, hey, pay this Alipay invoice for me. Here's the QR code. Here's the money. Done. That's how I paid all my bills in China. Oh, nice. I was charging my phone at a kiosk and they wanted me to pay to charge a phone and showed me this WeChat Pay QR code. I was like, man, I don't have WeChat Pay. Oh. I just went to the Paxful, sold some Bitcoins to a guy for WeChat Pay and he, I sent him the QR code and it was paid. The screen lit up and my phone started charging. Done. Wow. Very nice. So how much of the usage of Bitcoin in Africa is as a store of value versus method of payment? Because you're giving some examples that are clearly like method of payment use cases if you have to pay a supplier in China or something like that. How many of them use it to store value against, say, the local currency, which might be inflating quite a bit? Yeah, so this is the question of Bitcoin as an investment versus Bitcoin as a means of exchange. You know, And if you're asking me to give a percentage either way, I would definitely say that Bitcoin as a means of exchange has been growing tremendously, exponentially over the few years, whereas before it didn't exist four years ago. With Paxil brought all this into Africa, the Africans took charge of the whole thing. They really led it towards that direction. I don't know where the percentage is at now, but, you know, before Paxil was around, it was definitely 100% investment. No one was using it as a means of exchange. But now you're seeing people use Bitcoin as a means of exchange in big OTC deals in various like off escrow deals and WhatsApp and Telegram. It's this whole vibrant OTC economy has grown up around Africa and they're beginning to see the power of cryptocurrency. So I don't know if that number is still able to match the investment number because there's a lot of scams and a lot of people are still trying to invest a lot of money already, but it's growing exponentially. And my feeling is within the next two years, it'll vastly outpace investing and speculation. Well, I mean, that said, their currencies are kind of going low. So are they keeping it in dollars? If you're in Nigeria or Kenya or Ghana or whatever, like how do you store your value? Do you keep it in your bank account in the local currency? Do you keep it in US dollars? Do you keep it in Bitcoin? What's sort of your take on that? What's your instinct on that? 99.9% .9 of people keep it in the local currency, just like most people around the world. That, you know, other small fraction, they're going to spend it or like invest it in, you know, gold. The or they can even better U.S. dollars if their U.S. if their bank over there allows them to have a U.S. dollar account. Mm. That's the question. And oftentimes, how do those folks get U.S. dollars? The only way they could get U.S. dollars is by taking some ridiculous conversion rate at the bank, buying it on the black market, etc. Mm. You know, having one of their family friends fly it in in cash and cash it out. But not many countries allow you to have a USD account. Mm. Like Turkey does. Nigeria does, but the U.S. and Nigerian accounts are completely separate. One cannot touch or fund the other. So there's, there's a huge like wall around these things. There's a lot of examples in Africa. Um, you know, Kenya is pretty open, but 
pretty much every other African country is really shelled out and locked down under this, you know, iron curtain of financial apartheid in some way or the other. They always like block you in some way. Mm, I see. Oh, it's kind of interesting thing. Why is that? Is there like sort of like government regulations that control these markets, like from a monetary perspective? I mean, you hinted earlier that France was controlling it for at least some of the countries. What about the other ones? Why are the systems the way they are there? Well, that's where all the corruption comes in, right? So let's look at Nigeria, for example. They're not controlled by the French. You know, Nigeria is the biggest economy in Africa. By sheer number of its population, it, it exceeded South Africa. So what's wrong with Nigeria? Why isn't Nigeria a first world country yet? Well, okay, we have the corruption. But let's look at the issue, the sources of that corruption. Nigeria is like five countries in one created by the British along the worst possible tribal lines. Right? So they're starting from a legacy and, and history of that. This corruption, all their leaders... They also have their bank accounts in the West. The banking system in Nigeria internally is very good, but they really can't communicate with the outside world at all. In Nigeria, the central bank is extremely restrictive of sending money out of the country, meaning there was an episode three years ago where the Nigerian central bank said, hey, we're not letting people send you know wire money out of the country anymore. All these Nigerian dudes that ran a car import-export business were fucked. Like, they couldn't, you know, how could they pay for that used Range Rover they bought in Mannheim auctions in Detroit and wanted sent over to Nigeria and to sell it, you know, 200 300% profit? They couldn't do that anymore because mm. they couldn't pay. <laughs> they couldn't send a wire. I was, the Nigerian government said, hey, we want to hold on to the euros and dollars for ourselves. Don't let our people use it. Our citizens use it. We're going to use it ourselves. The Nigerian Central Bank just backed them up. And then the entrepreneur was in deep trouble. So what happened? They found their way to Paxful. They typed Bitcoin into a search <laughs> engine and came to us. And then I said, hey, what's up? You know, I do customer support too. And I'm talking to these guys and I'm telling them, you know, I'm getting their problem. They're like, yeah, you know, finally they tell me what their issue is. They're trying to buy this car. Mm. And have it shipped over. I'm like, okay, so you can't do the wire anymore. Like, yeah, impossible. You don't know anyone in America that you can have like, you know, some arrangement with? And they're like, no, I don't have any family in America that can do it at this volume. I'm like, all right. So how about this? The car costs 9,000 US dollars. He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, buy 9,000 bucks of Bitcoin. And I will introduce you to a guy in America who will happily buy your Bitcoin and pay the bill for you to Mannheim Auctions. Just send in the invoice. It's just a local bank transfer to another local bank transfer in America. And Bitcoin powered that. And at first, they all thought it was a scam. Then they saw it worked. And they're like, holy shit. I can go about my business again. And that's beautiful when you show someone that. You know, that's another, that's just an example of one of the, I mean, there's more, like Nigeria, it's another example. In Nigeria, if you have a bank account, and many Nigerians actually do, and you get a debit card, like some banks in Nigeria will only let you spend $100 a month online with that debit card, no matter how much money you have in your account. Can you imagine that? You know, so there's all kinds of limits. There's, there's all kinds of things holding down the entire continent, especially its leaders, quote unquote. You know, any African leaders worth anything are immediately killed. Oh, no. <laughs> And that's what happens, you know, they, 
They've been dropping like flies as of late. The only African leader that I really admire is Paul Kagame in, in Rwanda. He's an amazing man. That's why we chose to build our schools, our first two schools in Rwanda, because of him and his stabilizing, calming, healing effect on the country. No corruption in Rwanda. You heard it here first. It really is. It's like Wakanda. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a model country. Well, tell us more about the schools that you're building in Africa and what led you to go do that. Yes. So our plan is to build schools. A hundred schools is the goal that we set. We're on school number four right now in Nigeria. We built one in Kenya. It's finished right now, but it can't have students until the COVID situation is over, possibly in January. As far as the first two schools, they were built in Rwanda, as I said before, in Bugasera district. That's the district where the Rwandan genocide happened about 20 years ago. So we chose that place. Well, why? Because we thought it could use some love, but the people there are very warm, very gentle, places very clean, and the people are healed. Like They don't have any animosities against each other for what happened 20 years ago. So we built our first two schools there. We built a well, and we've been going back and forth and upgrading it. So currently it houses 400 students. And, you know, we have, you know, three big school buildings. We have solar panels. We have a a clinic there that we just set up. We have a little sports field and even a garden and a kitchen. Like it's a full kind of little campus, right? And we're always going back and, you know, adding some upgrades, you know, World of Warcraft style, (laughs) StarCraft style, SimCity style. And it's, I mean, what can I say? We have 400 children now that can go to school. And it's a great school. The curriculum is ages from one to, from baby to 12, 12 slash 13. That's how the African system works. So those are the ages of the children. And my dream is that one of the day, one of these schools will become a school for gifted children. So I want to do the Professor Xavier thing. <laughs> Call me crazy. But, you know, the schools actually go together with the water. I'll talk about the water later, but just giving you guys some history about me. The reason I'm so keen to build schools is I had an experience in America, in New Orleans, actually, right after Hurricane Katrina hit. I managed to get into the city the first day was, you know, starting to let humans back in. And I met these five nuns and helped rebuild the first school to open up in the entire city, the New Orleans Cathedral Academy in the French Quarter. And because of that, the police and fire department could come back into the city And the city started to breathe again. And I was like, wow, we really made a difference. You know, it was a hell of an experience. Me, five nuns, met this trucker. We went and raided a Lowe's, looted kind of, but we needed supplies to build the school, man. I'm not a criminal, okay? And then we met these Christian volunteers from Alabama. They all came and they helped us. And we totally actually rebuilt the entire school after that hurricane. And it just showed me the power of education. And I never forgot that. I never forgot that adventure. I never forgot the lesson that it taught me. I never forgot the difference that just a few people can make. You know, you open up a little school, but because of that, the city can actually start breathing again because the city doesn't live without its police and fire department. So it just showed me the power that I could have on the world, something sustainable, good, social justice. And Built with Bitcoin is a big part of that. And it's not just us. We're getting partners that are contacting us every day and they want to help build schools. They want to help, you know, build sustainable goodness. Mm. And how much of an impact does your school have in terms of educating them about Bitcoin? Like, are you giving them lessons in 
economics and things like that? No, not currently. They're too young. But eventually, yes, once they reach a certain age, that'll be a part of the curriculum. We have solar panels in there. So the next thing is to get them tablets and we can set them up with Bitcoin wallets. Uh, phone reception isn't that great out in that village, but we will find a way to fix that as well. But, you know, by and large, the education is amazing. It's great. But what we've seen actually is that the water is even more needed. You know, the water situation in Africa is, you have to see it to believe it. Like literally the eldest son in every African family will spend six hours out of their day, every single day, waking day, fetching water for their families. They'll go to wells, fill up the wells with water, dirty water in this old jerry can that's, you know, filled using the worst possible plastics. And they'll take it back home to their families. And because of that, they can't go to school, right? If you're spending six hours of your day fetching water, they can't go to school. So think about how much that robs the African nation of its GDP. Like These eldest sons can't use their energy for other things. Now, because that first two schools we built had a well, and it was 98% over capacity. And we're like, hey, wait a minute. If the school doesn't really need this well that much, why don't we open it up to everyone? And that's what we saw. People came from all around just to fetch water. And we're like, wait a minute. We need to make this a smooth process. So we hired two people to work there full time and just charge the people 20 francs per fill of, of a jerry can. That's like a fraction of a penny. They're very, very happy with that. So much so that hundreds of people go through there a day. There's 450,000 humans that live in Bugacera district. They all go to that well to get water. And even people from outside districts are paying them to ferry the water to them. Mm -hmm. So it's a tremendous boon to the peoples. They're so loyal, so happy to have the water. It just makes an area so much more energetic. And it's absolutely required building block. Like just having the education without the water, it's not going to help. The eldest sons will not be there. You know? Well, so that brings up an interesting question because, you know, I mean, we're certainly not familiar with having to go to a well to go fetch water for ourselves. But that sort of, I guess, infrastructure of, you know, indoor plumbing and things like that don't seem to exist in large parts of Africa. Like, are there plans for that sort of infrastructure to get built? Or are they sort of having to live in a more, you know, backwards kind of way because of lack of resources or something like that? Yeah, so it's a great question. So the truth is, you know, Africa has enough labor and enough natural resources to build, you know, a mansion or a palace for every damn person on the continent. You know? But because of the situation over there with the corruption, the financial apartheid, the, the lack of ability to use their money even internally because of the you know, poorly developed systems over there, also the destabilization and constant interference, the currency wars, all these things keep them from building up the structure that they need. Primarily great leadership. You look at Rwanda, they have a lot of structure there. Kigali is a very well-developed city. Have they reached out the boonies in the villages yet? No, they have not, but they will. We have. You know, we haven't brought, you know, we have plumbing there. It's localized. It's not, you know, connected to the big city, but it doesn't have to be. So things can grow very, very fast. Really what that continent needs is access to capital. And to add access to capital, they need to have a system of credit, you know, a system of KYC, you know, KYC is completely broken, especially for Africa. So there's all these foundational issues that need to come into play, like 
There needs to be capital before capital. There needs to be a credit rating system. Before that, there needs to be proper KYC and proof of address. And so these are things that we're actually trying to build right now at Paxful as separate projects, not because we want to, but because we have to. So if there are any great product people listening, please do reach out. Ray Paxful on Twitter, Ray at Paxful.com. Say hi, and I will answer you back, especially if you're a product person, probably be all over you. Mm. Well, that's so interesting that it's really asking the question of how do you bootstrap an economy? Because to, to a large degree, what I think you're saying is that money is at the core of this. And if you don't have a good system of money, it's very hard to build up infrastructure, to build up economies, to build up entrepreneurs. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen it time and time again. History has proven it. And every single time... This has been proven it's been just as quickly suppressed and buried. History has proven that if there's an honest money system, then abundance and prosperity is simply inevitable. It's a natural state of humans. The 13 colonies in America proved that. These were literally colonies. You know, dudes on boats showed up, started chopping down trees, you know, building chicken sheds. And yet, by, you know, within a few years, these people had a better standard of living than even a nobleman in Paris. How is that? Like, the English were like, wait a minute, how is this even possible? How could they do this? They did this because colonial script was just backed up by human labor. That's it. It's proof of work. <laughs> just like Bitcoin. It, yeah, there was no gold backing it up, no silver, none of this nonsense. Just, hey, raw human labor. Work is what created colonial script. That's why they were so prosperous. The moment the English found out about this, like, no, make them take the pound. It's backed up by gold by the central bank. Oliver Benjamin Franklin served in the news. He knew America was fucked. He fought as hard as he could. You know, within a year, the 13 colonies had you know, 60% unemployment after using the English pound, you know. So, I mean, Benji knew that was a huge scam. But you know, that's why the Revolutionary War was fought. Was these guys that you know built up this entire colony country? You just saw all their hard work just destroyed, and now they have to live as beggars. You know, they're like, no, absolutely, it wasn't about coffee or tea; it was about money. That's interesting because the love- same parallel is now happening in Africa, where you know through monetary control you can extract the resources from the colony that you have, and you know get all of that, like sort of capture value for yourself instead of the people that actually work for it. I, I mean, I guess that's what's happening in Africa as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they do pull the same old shtick, you know, everywhere. And Africa has been one of their you know, favorite victims for a very long time. And it's really easy to do that to Africa because there's no guardians there. You know, it's just the people are just not protected, you know, and, how do people protest? You see what's happening in Nigeria right now with this NSARS. You know, I looked at it first and was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? These people have some legitimate grievances. Why are young men with nice phones or nice sneakers being stopped and arrested and frisked and beaten and searched and robbed? This is like the NYPD. Like in the, especially in the 90s, they were just like black men were in danger. They were hunting them, you know, for just for having a beeper, you know, like. Now I'm seeing the same thing happen in Africa. I'm like, my goodness, what the hell? We're in bizarro world. But, you know, history keeps repeating itself. 
the, the, the tactics for control do not change. So you're obviously bringing Bitcoin to Africa with your peer-to-peer trading platform, Paxful. How do you think that changes what's going on there? How do you think, like, say, in the next five to 10 years, having this base of money that's available, of capital that's available, how does that change the day-to-day life of all those people that live there? It's absolutely transformative for them. If they could just use the money that they had, I mean, even just setting up a pan-African, seamless pan-African settlements network, that would be transformative for the entire continent. You would start seeing within five to 10 years, there'd just be abundance breaking out everywhere, especially with all these young people, especially with their access to outside capital because of technology. If there were just a way to easily pay them remit funds, like, and they could actually you know, acquire, buy things outside of their countries in Africa and just settle up within internally, my goodness, it would be like runaway prosperity, I swear to you. As crazy as that sounds, that is literally the only thing that is holding all of this back. The inability you know, to trade with each other? Yes, it's a huge part of the problem. There's no such thing as a seamless pan-African settlements network. You know, Companies in Kenya of these VAs in Malawi, and it's so hard for them to pay them. This is a corporation, an African corporation. Africa is very fragmented in a lot of ways. Like, for example, M-Pesa, you know, huge hit in Kenya, completely flopped in South Africa. Why? The terrain is very, very different. So there are some, you know, terrain issues. Africa is a very diverse place, but by and large, you know, Africa is where Africa is, but Africa simply does not, have access to financial services that the people just don't even the governments are completely kept under control it's a miracle that you know africans is there at all honestly considering what they've had to go through not to mention the three successive waves of slavery you know that wasn't very nice Mm. either well so that's very interesting i had never thought of africa's lack of prosperity as the result of a lack of ability to trade. But that kind of makes sense. Like if you can trade with your neighbors very easily, then you get, you sort of have this multiplying network effect of being able to specialize and so on. But what you're saying uh, is that they don't have that. And that's a large part of their suffering is that they don't have the ability to trade with a neighbor. And that in turn causes a lot of impoverishment. Exactly right. Exactly right. And when I figured that out, I was like, wow, finally now things start to make sense. It's not just because, you know, in America, they make us believe, oh, yeah, those Africans, they're just dancing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> they tell us bullshit like this. It's not the case, my man. Like, they are very hardworking people. It's a miracle that they've come as far as they've come with this huge handicap, massive handicap. That's interesting because. Like when I think about like the recovery in Asia after World War II and things like that, part of one of the things that was very clear in that time period was that they did have the ability to trade very quickly with their neighbors and so on. Africa, it sounds like, hasn't had that like ever, like the ability to trade conveniently with their neighbors and, you know, sort of specialize and you know, in Asia, you know, you, ha- you have different countries that are good at different things. And, you know, when you could trade, you can, you know, get comparative advantage based on that. And it's prosperity for everyone. Sounds like Africa's never really had that chance. And that's part of the oppression that we're seeing there. 
Exactly. <laughs> exactly right, man. It is what it is, brother. We're sitting here and, you know, if you're listening to this, you know, whoever's listening to this podcast now, a lot of this information might be the first time you've heard any of this stuff. When I first had to accept all this stuff, it was like, wow, is this really what's happening in the world? You would never see this part of Africa. You would never know about this unless you were on the ground in financial services in Africa, talking to Africans every single day, seeing how the most ingenious and needful of them will use a people-powered platform like Paxful to solve their problems. When you got that, only then can you become aware of this world. And that's my job since I'm aware of it now, one of the few, to let you all know this is the reason why Africa is Africa. And this is the reason when we fix this, when we break these shackles of financial apartheid, Africa will lead the world. Mm. Believe it. Africa is the next America. (laughs) I've been saying that for a while. People have been following me crazy. Well, I mean, if you could break down these trade barriers, essentially, that exist, and it's not even, it's not like lots of movements of isolationism or something like that. It's just, they're essentially controlled by the Western world in some weird form of monetary control. And that's what it sounds like prevents them from trading with each other is that they do need to convert to the dollar first and then figure out how to get it to their vendors in the country next door or something like that, that which seems just absolutely crazy. But that's what's preventing their prosperity. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can't, you don't know how bad that is until you have to actually deal with it. Imagine not being able to order an Xbox on Amazon with your debit card. It's, it's too much. You can only order one game at a time and you have to wait. Until well, next I mean, month worse, you other. pretty much have to build your own Xbox, right? And you can't source components like from your neighbor that makes hundreds of them or something like that. You have to build it yourself yeah. and you have to have like a completely self-contained economy. I mean, this is why North Korea, for example, is extremely impoverished. It's because... They literally have to make everything themselves, and it's very rare that they get any external thing. Okay, so last question for you. Where do you hope that Bitcoin is with respect to Africa in about 20 years? In about 20 years, wow, a lot can happen in 20 years. Look, I love Bitcoin very much. I can't, I mean, I would love it if Bitcoin became the default currency of choice for everyone. We're paying for coffee with our Satoshis. I think that'd be awesome. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think Bitcoin makes the most sense as a clearing layer. I really do. Because that's what I'm seeing right now. In the future, as things evolve and everyone has Bitcoin, then yes, of course, people will say, okay, let me just send you some Satoshis for that. And that's the way things can be. And then once price discovery happens with Bitcoin, people, it's denominated in it. Okay, great. There's already small pockets in Africa where people are actually using purely cryptocurrency for some you know, payments happening within as experiments. Taking that mass market, however, we believe within the next five years it's possible. Paxful is currently scaling up to do that, and it's an immensely challenging, it's immensely challenging ambition, you know. But we can actually do it. That's the scary thing. There's just a few things we have to work out. These are foundational things like KYC. Like, how can we expect? You know, I know KYC is a dirty word, and no one wants to hear it. Believe me, I understand. But, you know, we're in the age of compliance right now. There's a huge compliance purge happening in all of crypto and it's just going to get worse. You know, we've dotted our I's and crossed our T's and abided by the law. We're where we are, blah, blah, blah. But we're doing that, one, because we respect the law. But two, it's really to help the people because 
without the proper tools of KYC, how are we going to get to all those people? They're just going to be invisible blockchain users. That's not going to fly. You know, we have to get out of that world. This whole anonymous world that people want with crypto doesn't make sense. Africans do not want to be anonymous. They are invisible people that want to be visible. You know, like I tell all the people at like the crypto honey badger conference, they're all invisible people that want to be invisible. For Africa, it's the exact opposite. So we have to stop imposing what we perceive to be problems onto them because they have very different problems than what we think are problems. Well, they definitely have different motivations. And it sounds like your vision for them is probably different than, say, you know, anarcho-capitalist vision, you know, from some Western country or something like that. Yeah, I just want people to be rich. <laughs> at the end of the day, Paxful, yeah, I just want, you know, at the end of the day, all problems we solved if everyone had enough money, right? Like they really would. And that's all we want. We want people to just generate wealth for themselves. I believe in a world of abundance and prosperity, not scarcity. All right. Well, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter, Ray Paxwell. Instagram, Ray Paxwell also. You can find me on Telegram, also Ray Paxwell, rayatpaxwell.com. I have a Medium blog as well. But just reach out to me. And if you are in London, you can see me tonight. <laughs> but other than that, I'll be in New York City for the next few weeks. So reach out and let's say hi. Let's talk saving the world. Uh, over telephone, because I don't think you can meet in person, uh, at least in London, right? Oh, no. We're doing all kinds of things. <laughs> we got a whiteboard here and we're mad. Yeah, we're doing all, all right. right. Well, that sounds good. Thanks for coming and thanks for educating us on Africa. Thank you so much for having me, brother. It's been awesome. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Ray can be found at, at RayPaxful on Twitter and on Paxful.com. Until next time, fiat the lenda est.